a couple summers ago now, uh, Jason and I took a motorcycle trip up into Canada, uh, and, and we took a road that loops up and around behind Whistler in BC, which is gorgeous, all that uh, mountainous terrain up there. Jason even admitted it was as pretty as Montana, which is, which is a pretty big deal. I don't know if I should say that with Jason's mom's here. That might get you in trouble, but okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I just imagined it, yeah. Um, but one of the most amazing things about this road we, we were on up above Whistler was, was there were, were a couple spots along the way where you could uh, look back, which is you don't want to do too long on a motorcycle, but you could look back or you look, could look ahead and see the, uh, the geography, the landscape roll out behind you and in front of you uh, in this twisty mountain highway. So there were these clearing spaces where you could look down, you remember that, and you could just see that winding road miles and miles ahead, these vantage points as you go through the mountains uh, where you could see the river running through the canyon and, and then the rest of the time you're in this dense and forested area. But uh, there were these vantage points along the way where the geography was just laid out very plainly for you. So you could look behind, you could look ahead and kind of see where you were going, where you were coming from. Uh, and, and of course it was beautiful, uh, but it was helpful to have those vantage points as you navigated this unknown mountainous uh, terrain on, on a motorcycle and a, and a two-lane highway and all, all kinds of different things that we saw along the way. Um, but, but there's that vantage point that was, that was there for us as we traveled. And, and in a way, as we come to Hebrews chapter 12 in these verses, we have this kind of high a viewpoint perspective given to us in these verses that helps us with the, with the geography and the landscape of all that we've traversed already in the book of Hebrews and even all that's still to come as we finish out our studies in this book. Because as we come to this point in the book of Hebrews, we see that the preacher is bringing us up uh, to, this, to this high place, this high point of view, uh, where the significance of the main and plain things of the book of Hebrews are brought together in this contrast that's presented to us in these verses. And you see the contrast that's there as you, as you look at verses 18 to 24, where verse 18 uh, begins there, uh, for you have not come. And then verse 22 begins with, instead you have come. So this contrast is presented there. And from this vantage point where we consider this contrast, what the preacher is doing is helping to provide a, a, a significant point of view of all the gospel terrain that we've, we've covered in this book, which is very helpful for us. Because as we think about the, the book of Hebrews, um, we, we've, covered, we've covered a whole lot of landscape in terms of understanding what's true about Jesus and all that's accomplished in Him as we reflect on uh, the culmination of all of God's promises through Christ, thinking back through the Old Testament in all of these different ways. We've seen how, how Jesus is the one who's superior to angels. Jesus is the, the better Moses who leads God's people into the eternal promised land of rest. We've seen how Jesus is the better priest, the better sacrifice, all these uh, extravagant, uh, extravagant pieces of gospel scenery now that we've had laid out for us as we go through the book of Hebrews, and now the preacher is coming to this high place and putting it all in, in, in one sense, a, a simple perspective, but at the same time, he's bringing together profound truth that we need to understand and have very clear in our minds as we're navigating what the whole of the book of Hebrews means. The, the, the preacher here is trying to uh, offer us this position of advantage as we understand everything that's going on in order so that the uh, significance of the gospel terrain here is, is, is viewable for us. We can see what's coming. We can understand where we've been and these kinds of things. And, and, and we need this simply because uh, this section helps us 
focus our attention on what is absolutely central to the book of Hebrews. Uh, we, we can understand that each letter in the New Testament, or we refer to Hebrews as a, as a sermon because it was first to preach sermon, but each letter in the New Testament is what theologians refer to as occasional. There were occasions for these letters to be written, and the uniqueness of Hebrews' occasion is underpinned as we, as we think about uh, the, these verses especially and then how they, how they apply to us particularly. And so what we're going to do is we're going to consider this, this high point of view of Christ-centered truth that's here for us in this passage, and, and you can look at verses 18 to 24. It'll help if you keep an eye on those verses as, as we always, wanted, always want to be doing. Um, and there we have this contrast. Again, there's 18 to 21. We have the first part. And then 22 to 24, we have the second part. And, and we'll just look at each of these sections in turn as we, as we see what the preacher's putting together for us here. Uh, so, verses 18 to 21 is where we'll start. And, and in verses 18 to 21, we have this summative statement uh, where the preacher is telling us that, that in trusting in Jesus, we have not come to what we can refer to here as a place of distance and terror. So, so as we trust in Jesus, we have not come to something that can be marked out by distance and terror. So, so, so let's work this out a little bit in terms of, of what he's getting at. Um, in verse 18, the, the preacher says to these believers that they have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, and then verse 19, he gives even more details. He says, you have not come to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Now, now it's possible for us to read that, even as Dan was reading this passage for us, and all of a sudden we get to this section. It's possible for us to read this and, and wonder, what in the world is being referenced here? Uh, not, not only does this sound fairly obscure and a little bit foreboding, uh, but, but what is all this business about something that could be touched? And then it, it's also referred to with all these descriptions that actually make it uh, something you'd never want to lay your hands on. It's this blazing fire, this storm, these kinds of things. Uh, none of that seems very inviting, let alone uh, something you could reach out and touch. So, so what's going on in this passage? What, what, is, he, what is he bringing up uh, seemingly out of the blue here? But as we begin to reflect on this, what we do remember is that the preacher of Hebrews knows he can presume a great deal of Old Testament knowledge with regard to his original audience. And we know this, uh, not just because the preacher has worked through so many Old Testament passages already in the book of Hebrews, but we know this because the first audience of this letter is tempted to go back to that Old Covenant system. We, we know from this letter that they have a, a very a familiar, albeit uh, incorrect on very significant points, but they have a very familiar sense of the Old Testament truth that came through Moses that speaks about God's former ways of relating to His people through the Old Covenant, things that they would have, they would have learned through uh, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This group has a thorough Old Testament familiarity. And with that in mind, this reference here in verse 18 through verse 21 actually makes a lot more sense because, because even if we go on and read here, if you just look at verse 19, uh, verse 19 he goes on to say, those who heard the trumpet and the sound of words uh, beg that not another word be spoken because they couldn't bear what was commanded about how even if animals touched the mountain, it must be uh, stoned. 
Then we have this language of appearance where, where this appearance was so terrifying that Moses himself even said, I'm trembling with fear. So, so knowing the Old Testament background, as these believers would have, uh, while, while all the, that's in these verses might sound like a very strange and, and foreboding description that seems disconnected from all else that's gone on in chapter 12 so far, we can know that this first audience would understand what's being said here to be a direct reference to the way God Himself manifested His presence as He gave Moses the commands on Mount Sinai. So, so this is a description that takes us back to Exodus 19 where God speaks to Moses after the Israelites have been delivered out of Egypt and God speaks to Moses about preparing the people to receive His commands on the mountain. Those commands, remember, are the, are, are the stipulations. They're the framework for that uh, covenant that God was going to use to, to relate to His people. That old covenant, what we would say old covenant uh, framework now. And, and so all of that is going on back, back in Exodus 19, and that's what's being referenced here. And, and just to understand a little bit about, about the context further, let me, let me read to you part of, of what is uh, recorded for us in Exodus chapter 19 along these lines. So in Exodus 19, we read that God is speaking to Moses and He directs Moses to have the people put boundaries all around the mountain, so all around Mount Sinai, and say, so Moses is supposed to say this to the people, be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. No hand may touch it. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows and not live, whether human or animal. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then they may go up the mountain. So God is giving these, these directives to Moses. And then he also says, on the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud blast from a ram's horn so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And then we read this. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So, so, so what's there in that passage, what our passage is referring to, is this extraordinarily majestic description of God's presence coming to the people in the wilderness at Sinai as he's about to give them the, the terms of that old covenant relationship that they would have with him, the terms of the law. And ultimately, as we read through Exodus, God's presence is so dreadful and awe-inspiring that just like our, our preacher references here, the people beg Moses to go be the one who talks to God. They don't want to be the one who interacts with God on this. He, he's too much. You go, Moses. Don't let him speak another word to us. They were absolutely terrified by the smoke and thunder reality of God's presence. So Moses, you go. We don't want to go. We're afraid. So, so, so in this context in which the old covenant, this, this context in which the old order of God's mediated relationship with His people was established, we see that this is a, a palpably overwhelming thing going on here. Even verse 18 uh, here, here in Hebrews 12 contrasts this old covenant uh, experience with the new as, as the old being something that could be touched. So there was this palpability, there was this obvious tangibility to the fact that God's presence was manifest on the mountain in such a physical way. But at the same time, 
what accompanied that encounter between God and His people was not this sense of, of safe communion with God. We, we don't have Adam again walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day kind of thing. But instead the people had this sense of, 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 of genuine distance from God. He's on the mountain, we have to stay down here. And this very real awareness of terror. This is the God who's entirely other. And not just is he entirely other, but this is the God who is absolutely unapproachable in his majestic, uh, storm-inducing, thunderous-speaking power. Even if your cattle touch that mountain when God's presence is being manifest, let alone if you people touch it before you're called up, if life touches that mountain, it's done. So, so, so at Sinai, it was very clear that, that this God is supremely separated and the effect of that realized separation, the realized majesty, holiness, perfection, purity of God, the effect of that is deadly terror, as it should be. Even Moses, hear what we read in, in our passage. Moses, who we're told in Exodus 33, actually spoke, as it were, face to face with God. Moses had this unique, intimate communion with God as a selected leader of the Israelites. Even Moses reflects on his encounters with God in Deuteronomy. And like the preacher quotes here, Moses says, I trembled with fear. In fact, it's not just the word for fear that's there at the end of verse 21, but it's the word for, for profound or intensified fear that's used uh, as Moses describes his own experience. This is, this is the living God. And, and so it's this description here that we have, this account of, of, of God's revelation to His people as He entered into the old covenant relationship with them. He was a God of all purity and power, and because of this purity and power, distance was required upon pain of death, and the emotion of terror was the generalized popular reaction. And as we reflect on what's here, we know why the preacher is bringing this up for his audience. The, the, the preacher's making the point that, that really he's been making throughout, throughout the whole book of Hebrews, he's making the point that the living and true God whom we serve is not a God that can, never, that can ever be ultimately related to in old covenant categories safely. Clearly, God was making a way for His people to relate to Him, but that was not an ongoing and ultimately safe way for God and, and people to have a relationship. This is not a God who can ultimately be related to securely through that old covenant framework. That old framework, even at its very inception, it's relationally represented as a, as a, as a, as a, uh, as a covenant uh, with distance and fear instilled into the very fiber of that relationship that's taking place. And, and again, we know why the preacher's bringing this up. He's bringing this up to help his audience look out from this high-altitude viewpoint of truth at all the theological geography that he's been covering in the book of Hebrews. He's bringing the people to see why they can't go back to that old way. Remember, that old way of distance from God, that old way of distance and a relationship with God that ultimately has these punctuation marks of terror attached to it. So, so the initial application for this audience, as we've seen over and over and over in the book of Hebrews, is very clear. You can't go back from following Jesus to this old covenant way of relating to God and think that everything is going to be okay. Don't you people even remember how that whole thing started, is what he's saying. 
And, and while the immediate application of these verses is along those lines for this first audience, um, we can understand how there's, there's careful application to be made uh, for this ourselves. Not, not because we're necessarily tempted to go back from God's climactic work in Christ in the new covenant to, to now try to access relationship with Him in the old covenant framework. We, we're, we're not probably tempted to do that uh, much ourselves here in our own context. But these verses are important for us as well because they show that going back to old ways before Christ, ways which even God himself had ordained and deemed to work through in terms of relating to his people, but going back to any ways before Christ, any ways apart from Christ, ultimately leaves us in this unsafe place before God. That's what's being communicated here. Even the Old Covenant, which is, which is Scripture, it's ordained by God. This is how the people were commanded to relate to God. Even going back there would leave you in a place of, of unfulfilled and dangerous relationship with God. For us, as we think about this, how much more danger is there to go back to anything other than Jesus in our own context? And, and we know those options to go back from Jesus uh, to, to other things are very present in our time. In fact, the immediate context of the temptation for the Hebrews, as we've been talking about, is simply a cultural one. They were living in a day when, when uh, Judaism was very... Uh, was something that was smiled upon by the Greco-Roman world in general. You could, you could be a practicing Jew, an old covenant, if we can put it that way, believer, and, and that would be fine. It was grandfathered in as, as, as a way of worshiping among the Roman uh, and Greek pantheon of gods. That was okay. But to take up this Jesus business, well, that, that's a weird offshoot of Judaism. And then you've got all these people calling Jesus Lord instead of Caesar. This is causing all kinds of trouble here. That Christianity thing, that doesn't have any place. But if you just want to go back to Judaism, well, we can find a happy little slot for you over here. You can be culturally accepted and everything will be fine, which is why they're facing this temptation. Following Jesus means their friends go to prison, their properties confiscated, and they're dealing with public mockery like we read about in Hebrews chapter 10. But if we just go back to Judaism, well, all that will go away and things will be fine. There's that cultural capitulation that's being called for in their life. That's the temptation. And, and, and again, as we think about this ourselves, the social pressure to go back from Christ, well, it's not a pressure to go back to old covenant Judaism. The social pressure to go back from Christ is certainly extremely prevalent in our lives today. We know this to be true. Go back from what Jesus says about the reality of judgment. Who can speak about the loving Savior who will at the same time be the judge of the world? You don't need to believe that. You just go back from that part from that part of following Jesus. You don't need that. And quite frankly, you don't need the, the exclusivity of His cross either. There's plenty of ways to get to heaven. Uh, you can be kind like Jesus, but you don't need to talk about that, 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 that one and only way to God through the cross of Christ kind of business. Just take a couple steps back from that. Or go back from what Jesus says about sexuality. That would certainly make things easier. Go back from what Jesus says about, about forgiveness of enemies. Go back from what Jesus says about His Lordship rights to my life. Go back from what Jesus says about, about His return and victory over all who will oppose Him. Just take a big step back from that and everything will be so much easier socially, culturally. Uh, in fact, probably more people will come to church. That would be great. If you can just take a big step back from all of those things, uh, that, that will be a much more fruitful position. But of course, what's being lined out for us here is that to go back from Christ, even to go back to God-ordained means of worship, any going back from Christ doesn't leave us in a safe position at all, 
but instead it leaves us in this very obvious position of distance from God and terror at His presence. Which is exactly the point that was already made back at the end of chapter 10, verse 31. What is it to fall into the hands of the living God apart from Christ? What is it? Is it pleasant and rainbows and sunshine? No, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God apart from the sufficiency of Christ applied to me. Which actually should be very motivating for us. One reason why... We, we don't go back from following Jesus. One reason we continue to persevere when things become very pressure-filled, and it would just be a lot easier to, 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 to reject Jesus and His commands. One reason we don't quit being faithful to Jesus is because we're rational creatures who understand that to cross the living and true God is to be in a position that is utterly terrifying, is logical. And quite frankly, it's really something that we just don't talk about enough. That this, in a large part, is why we are where we are in so much of Christendom today, waffling on what God says. And do we really have to believe that? Or do we really have to, have to live that directive of Scripture out? It'd be a lot easier to take a few steps back from that. But this is why we're there oftentimes. We, not you, but just generally in Christendom, we have lost perspective regarding the transcendent reality of the God who can come down in rolling blazes of fire and darkness and raging tempests and, and deep gloom and shake mountains. We've forgotten to be afraid. We, we've somehow forgotten the transcendent majesty and terrifying power of God and decided that it's more scary to cross contemporary culture. We've decided that it's more scary than what our friends and co-workers think or what cancel culture uh, may do uh, than what the God who rides on clouds of thick darkness says. We ask ourselves, what, what about the mountain shaking, the blazing fire, storm-inducing, deep darkness of the unmediated mountaintop presence of the living God? What about that? That's deeply terrifying. And one big thing that keeps us from going back from Christ is remembering that. So somebody asks us, why don't you just leave off uh, this whole following Jesus thing? Why don't you step out into the ways of the world around you a little bit? Uh, it's just ridiculous, this commitment you have to following Jesus in all these peculiar ways. Why, why, why don't you just slide back from that? And maybe some of the things that the Bible says, it will just be so much easier for you. And we have to be able to say to them gently and, and, and calmly, be able to say to them, you just have to understand that I'm afraid of doing that. I'm not so foolish as to think that I could step back from the way of God and be okay. I can't step back from His salvation purpose and be okay. You may say some things that hurt my feelings. There may be some repercussions from all this, but I tell you what, whatever you think about it, I'm way more afraid of what would happen to me if I step back from Jesus. He's the one who ultimately holds my, my, my future in His hand as my Savior, my Redeemer. He's the King, and there's no way I'm going to step back from Him. Do you realize how dangerous that is? That's a way more terrifying prospect than any opinion uh, you may level at me. The God of the mountain versus what you might say about me on Twitter. I'll take the God of the mountain. So, so that's what the preacher is getting at here. He wants these people to see, even to go back to the old covenant, even to go back to that former way of relating to God, thinking that we can do that without faith in Christ. It's easier after all just to go back to that. That's nothing even 
but distance from God and rightly placed fear. There can be no going back from Jesus. Which, of course, is the second half of the point he's going to make here. Because in Christ, we have not come to that place of distance and terror. That's the whole point of the contrast that he's setting up in this section. We're not coming to this place of distance and terror, but look at verses 22 to 24. The next thing he tells this, his audience there is, is we're not about to go back from following Jesus faithfully because in him, we're not coming to this place of distance and terror, but instead we're coming to this place of God's presence and the safety of his eternal assembly. So it's an amazing picture that you So just look at verses 22 to 24. So, so instead of coming to the mountain of God's terrifying presence where, where distance is, is required or there's going to be death, instead of that, we've come to the heavenly mountain. We've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, verse 22. So, so there's all these names there in, in, in the verse which would bring to mind the, the place of God's dwelling and the place where He's present with His people in the Old Testament, which is, which is Mount Zion. That's where Jerusalem is, uh, where the temple was located. And, and like we read earlier in Hebrews, that temple, you remember, was an earthly picture of what? Of that heavenly dwelling? You remember studying that in Hebrews earlier? It was an earthly picture of the heavenly dwelling where God's presence was fully manifest. That dwelling, actually, that will one day be among us in a new creation. That's why in Revelation we have one of the descriptions of the new creation being that of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. God's dwelling place through Christ will then be with us in this new creation. But for now, God's throne room, His dwelling is in the heavenlies. And the preacher says that there's a sense in which we've come to the, to the city of God, this heavenly realm, currently as His people. We're not those who've come to Mount Sinai, to that old covenant scary framework, but instead we've come to the heavenly mountain of God. Which is, which is really the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians 2, um, just not so poetically, when, when, when Paul tells us that, that God has already raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenlies. There's this positional reality that's indicated here is already existing. Which again is what the preacher is getting at here. And that as believers we've come into the presence of God. As it were where those myriads of angels worship. We've come to that place of God's presence that's not marked by fear. But as this text says by festivals. is joy. We've come to the joy of God's promise. Something that will climax in that final feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. When all things are made new. But the preacher's coming along and he's saying. You see even now we're counted as citizens of this heavenly city of God's redeemed. That's the mountain city we've come to. So verse 23, we've come to the community of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven. This is a whole world of sermons, this passage. I'm trying to show self-control and get through all this today. There's so much here. Here's, here's just something for your Bible study notes. In the Greek text, when it says you've come to the community of the firstborn, firstborn is a reference to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. You remember that? He is the firstborn. The, the, the amazing thing about this passage is he actually said it's plural in Greek. It doesn't reflect that in our English translations because it would be awkward. But he actually says, you've come to the, to the community of the firstborns. The firstborns. Jesus is the firstborn. What is he, all the status that comes with that firstborn sonship. What has he given us? We're firstborns. We're, we have that status. It's an amazing thing that, that's, that's worked out here, which again would be a, 
I'm not going to be distracted by that for too long. But we've come to this congregation of the firstborns whose names have been written in heaven. So, so, so our citizenship, along with others who've already died in the faith and gone before all those old covenant Old Testament believers who were trusting in God's promise. They weren't trusting in the old covenant to keep them safe. They were trusting in the promise of God that was displayed our great need through that old covenant that salvation would come. All who have gone before are now citizens in this city. We've come to this congregation. And not just that, but we've come to, to, the, to the judge who is God of all. We read that and we think, oh boy, here we're on this, this ominous uh, track again. Just like the last section, the, the, the judge of all. This God, are, are we being terrified again by what's here? But no, actually it's exactly the opposite. Because in the city of God, who is, by the way, judge of all, he says, don't forget that. But in the city of God, the citizens aren't described as, as, as distanced from God because of, because of his perfection and our impurity. Instead, in the presence of the judge, what are those who have, who have come into this heavenly citizenship? How are they referred to? Spirits of the righteous made perfect. You don't fear before the judge of all the earth if you've been made perfect. You're counted innocent. You're counted whole. Those who have gone before, those who've died in faith, and now us too having believed, we've entered this heavenly presence of God where, where, uh, where, where our status before God is one of wholeness and completeness. And even those who've gone before, who've died, whose bodies are still buried in the ground, their spirits are there in the presence of God, uh, reveling in the reality of, of, of God's heavenly existence. And they're not condemned before this judge. But instead, they're, they're perfected in righteousness. So there's not distance. There's not terror. But instead, there's this joyful presence. There's this safety. Of course, the question is then, how can this be sinful as all humanity is? Well, what's the difference between, between the tangible mountain of verse 18 and our secure citizenship in, in, this, in the spiritual realm of the heavenly city of God? Well, the preacher saves, saves, the, saves the best for last here. Where he tells us that we're secured as citizens in the eternal city of the living God because we've come to Jesus, verse 24. And Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, which he's worked out in great detail earlier on in Hebrews. But this is not the old covenant, which demonstrates uh, the, the people of God's impurity and distance from God, like what happened in Sinai, like what the law reveals. But instead, Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant, which sprinkles blood like the old covenant, he talks about that here in verse 24, but it's better blood. It's not the blood of bulls and goats, which could never really pay for sin. We've read about that earlier. It's Jesus' blood. In fact, here he punctuates it by saying, it's blood that says better things than the blood of Abel. You remember the blood of Abel, Genesis 4. God says there, after Cain murdered Abel, that the blood of Abel calls out to him from the ground. Is this personification there, right? It called out for justice because Abel's brother Cain murdered him. It was a call for justice, for punishment on sin, on murder. But the blood of Jesus is better because it doesn't call out uh, for, for condemnation because of sin. Instead, it calls out for our pardon because he paid our debt of sin with his blood. So, so you see, the preacher's putting everything together. We need this huge high vantage point to understand why we can never go back. This is, this is why we can never indulge in alternatives to Jesus that are otherwise so readily acceptable and available all around us. We can't go back because going back only means terror and distance from God. But with Christ, 
instead of terror and distance from God as we deserve, with Jesus, we actually come into God's presence and the safety of His eternal city. It's amazing that we are enrolled in the heavenly assembly of the redeemed. And, and, and this is the high point. This is, this is the summit from which we see all the landscape truth in the book of Hebrews. And, and quite frankly, this is the summit from which we look at the truth of all of the Bible. Why do we hold Jesus in the highest regard when the world scoffs at our worship and our commitment to follow His commands? Why? Why do we live by faith in God's promises when it can so often mean travail and hardship? Why do we run the race of faith even though we can feel worn out and weak? Why do we endure God's fatherly discipline in our lives? Why do we pursue peace and holiness in the midst of the trials we face? All these things we've been working through. Why, why will we heed the warning that's coming up in the end of chapter 12 as we study it next week? Why, why will we endeavor to apply all the ethical exhortations that still come in, in chapter 13? Why will we count following Jesus more pleasing than the warm nod of acceptance from those around us or the, or the easy indulgence of temptation that rises within us? Why do we keep going? Well, we do this because in Christ, in knowing Him, in following Him, in obeying His commands, in trusting in His climactic work on the cross, we do all this because in Christ we have this citizenship in the city of God, which is the country of rest. It's the place of God's presence, the eternal gathering of His people, where there isn't distance and terror, but instead, through Christ, we're brought near. This is why we keep going, because of our location. Which is just gospel truth 101. Why do you keep going? Why do I keep going? Why? We don't keep going to earn a place in the city. We don't keep going because if we don't do well enough, if we don't get our passport stamped oh, with enough of this and that, when we show up there, we're going to be rejected at the gate. No, we keep going because Christ has purchased and secured our place for us. We keep on because this eternal gift of redemption has already been applied. We're citizens. Which, as dull as this might sound, this is actually reflected in the specific grammar of our passage. So let me run you through this, just, just so you see it. Verse 22 says, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion. The preacher is actually quoting from Deuteronomy 4, verse 11, uh, when, he, when he's speaking about this coming to the mountain of God. And, and, and the preacher states this by using what's called a perfect form of the, of, of the verb in Greek grammar. And that matters uh, because it, isn't, it doesn't just communicate in that, in that gram grammatical form. It doesn't just communicate that an action is happening. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the aorist form is used in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, which is, which is uh, not the same as here. This is a distinct difference. And the preacher chooses this, though, because it communicates that action has already taken place in the past with continuing results. He's telling us specific with the verb choice that he's making here. So, so in other words, the, these believers are struggling, they're, they're, they're tempted, they're lazy, they're, they're drawn in directions that are dangerous, but the big thing is, in the grace of God, these believers have what? They have already come. There's a past reality that now carries forward with future implications. They've already come to the city of God. It's a way of speaking about the security that God has granted them. He's already, he's already granted them this salvation as they've come to Him. They are participants in this city. They're, they're in. They've already come. Which is really something considering that when we get into chapter 13, verse 14, we're told that the city of God is something we're still looking forward to. Isn't that it? You've come, but you're still going. You've come, but you're still going. 
Or to put it another way, we're, we're travelers in this journey of faith, but we travel in one sense from the place of already being home because of Christ. Which is just an amazing truth. That you're already there in Christ. You're secured in Christ. You don't travel from the place of hoping, I climb the ladder high enough or check off enough boxes, but here we are in Christ, obeying Him, having our final destination completely secured by Him. We look forward to it already belonging there. Which again is right at the center of the gospel. This is the good news about Jesus. I don't quit. You don't quit. Because our final destination has been secured by another. This Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, whose blood says the work required to save you and secure you is finished. The work's done. And so from this summit height gospel peak, we can look out and say with confidence that comes from knowing the superior Christ, we can look out and say we will press on. Because we're travelers who are, in another sense, already home. And we just bring that to mind as we need to bring that to mind. We go along in the faith and the pressures come and we wonder, am, 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 I, am, I, am I going to give in to the drifting? Am I going to be pressured so much that I can find myself far from Christ? And what we need to understand from the book of Hebrews is that he keeps his own. He secures his own. And ultimately, he brings us into this place of eternal rest uh, as, as though we've been there the whole time. It's an amazing truth. It's an amazing truth. And so he says to them, you've not come to terror and distance. You haven't come to a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, storm, all of these things. Instead, you've come to the city of the living God because you've come through Jesus. And again, in that, the entirety of our hope is, is, is wrapped up. This is what makes sense of the whole book. From this point of view, we view everything else. The warnings are there by God's grace to keep us in His way. The exhortations to holy living are there in order that we can respond to God's kindness to us. The truth of who Jesus is there so it can mold the way we trust and rely and recognize His supremacy in our worship and our daily lives. All of this comes into view as we recognize that we are citizens of this eternal kingdom secured by the finished work of Christ. And so we trust in that. That's why we sing the songs we do. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Not, I've done really well this week, so why don't you accept me? But this great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and intercedes for me, what else could we ever need but the finished work of Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. So, Father, we ask that we would be encouraged by this truth. May it be something that compels our lives of faith. And as it compels our lives of faith, may it be uh, something that uh, brings us great comfort and great assurance and at the same time great motivation to obey the Lord Jesus, recognize Him in His supreme and glorious place of authority over all things. And may we live lives that reflect that truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.